Yeah. Three of them are. Uh, but that's okay. We'll take, we'll take three. We're going to take the next three weeks and talk about um, what it means to be a godly man. What it means to be a man, to do life uh, God's way as a man. And uh, we probably should go 16 weeks, but we're only going three. Just kidding, guys. I'm just kidding. You can make fun of us. I'm a man. Um, but first, before I do that, I just want to thank our men from our church. Uh, God's been doing some cool stuff in our church, and um, our guys have been stepping up. Uh, guys have been stepping up to do the prayer and care ministry, which is kind of a behind-the-scenes thing. Uh, we've had some guys who are starting our what we call microgroups as well as adult groups, and so these microgroups, the guys are going to be meeting with uh, other guys in our church, and so some of our men have stepped up to, to do that, to facilitate those groups. Um, got guys that I can call on and say, hey, we need help at church. Like, we've got some snow issues around the building. We've got to clear out some, some of the snow. And they'll show up and come and do that. And the guys were here on Friday getting our uh, set put up. And that's pretty cool, isn't it? I mean, kind of different, but it's cool, you know. So appreciate our guys doing that. And uh, again, we're not going to get into this so much in this series, but uh, God has designed it. And again, take it up with him if you don't like it. But God has designed it that men are to uh, be leaders, spiritual leaders in the home and in the church. And anytime you ask uh, for somebody to meet a need at church, the ladies, boom, we're right in there, you know. Um, guys, sometimes we got to, you know, kick them and pull them and punch them and drag them and guilt them, you know, and I haven't got down to paying them yet. Um, just saying, but uh, close. I think you know, we did buy the guys lunch who were putting that up, so maybe I guess we did kind of meet their need that way. But um, So, yeah, I mean, that's kind of how God has set it up. Um, and again, you can take it up with him, but there's, some, um, there's huge blessing in it in our lives if we do life God's way, if we as men do life God's way, and of course women, but we've dealt with women, so they're all good to go. Um, when you hear the phrase, man up, what do, you, what do you think? What comes to mind when you hear, man up? You can answer that. What? Step up, all right? Be strong. What else? Show up, all right? <laughs> all right? And, and like physically show up, but also, you know, all right? What else? Don't be a wimp. Yeah. All right. Arnold Schwarzenegger. When he was younger or now? Because now, I mean, have you seen him recently? <laughs> Arnie. <laughs> you know, really, come on, buddy. Um, please don't wear that muscle shirt. I'm begging you. Um, there's something when you get massive and then have to shrink back down. It's not an easy thing to do as you get older. Believe me. I know. Um, you know, when I, think, when I think about this man up thing, I, I kind of had this picture of, um, you know, a guy or a couple guys around another guy. Maybe the guy is discouraged. Maybe he's frustrated. Maybe the guy is even making excuses or, or blaming other people for what's going on in his life. And finally, his buddies get around him and say, will you just man up? <laughs> will you just do what's necessary to get through whatever the struggle is that you're doing? You know what you need to do, so just do it. 
man up. Well, that's kind of what we're going to be talking about over the next three weeks. We're going to have God tell us, men, how we are to man up. What, what are we supposed to be doing? And uh, we're going to go to some passages that um, may not be normal that we would think of when we uh, do that, uh, but we want God to help us understand what it means to man up. When you think of uh, people, men in the Bible, what do you, uh, who do you think of as a man? Like a, yeah, Old Testament, New Testament, this guy is a man. Moses, Solomon, Abraham, David, Samson, Paul. You guys are just like the first service. Anybody think about Jesus, maybe? Hello? I mean, jeez. The guy's like perfect, right? I mean, he's the perfect guy. Nobody says Jesus. I love that. That's funny. Um, the first service, the same way. Some, finally, somebody says, Jesus? Like, everyone's like, hello? Uh, yeah, so, um, Dave, we're talking about Bible. That's why nobody said your name. <laughs> oh, did, nice. Whoever, nice. Yeah, you're paying them. Uh, Dave's like, I got you. Hands out ten, ten dollar bill. Yeah. So when you think about the Bible, you think about some guys, you know, that are real men. We're going to be talking about uh, David this week and next week. King David, Israel's greatest king, of course, next to Jesus Christ, because we all know that Jesus Christ is the king, not just of Israel, but of all the universe, being the one who created the world. Um, but we're going to be looking at um, a couple passages this week and next week anyways about King David, and we're going to go into Nehemiah chapter 4. Uh, so we're going to be in the Old Testament, kind of cool. We talked about the time of the judges in Israel's history with Ruth. Now we're talking about the time of the kings, and then in Nehemiah we're talking about the time of exile when they're coming back um, from uh, captivity when they were taken over by different nations. But go ahead and turn to Second Samuel. Chapter 23 is page 344 for using the Bible there in the chairs. And uh, David's come to the end of his life, and he's looking back over his life, uh, a life that was not perfect, like all of our lives are. And uh, he's looking back over, but he's looking at God's blessing. Actually, God gives him a song or a psalm um, that he expresses this in. And God, as he says it, the Spirit's given him these words. And so he's got this psalm or this song. David is, David is a man's man. I mean, he's got everything. You know, we should probably be a little bit of jealous of him. You know, the Bible says he's got beautiful eyes. In other words, he's, he's very handsome in appearance. He's ruddy. You know, so he's, he may not be the biggest guy in the world, but you know, he's hardworking. He may even have a little bit of a reddish hair going. And, uh, and on top of that, he's a wordsmith. I mean, he can put out beautiful psalms and poems and songs. I mean, this guy's got everything, right? This is the guy you didn't want to hang out with necessarily because he took all the girls um, when you're hanging out with him. But, so we can learn a few things from this, from this guy. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to read through these first seven verses and, um, <clears throat> and then look at some things that we can pull from what David uh, writes and then looking into the rest of the chapter two about some of his mighty men, his soldiers, um, basically a SEAL team, if you want to call it that. Um, but we want to learn some things, see what God has for us as men that we can put into our lives. So he says this, again, looking at the end of his life, 
These are his last words, but it's, it's not his last words as much of his last psalm and poem because he said other things. But now these are the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, declares, the man who, raised, uh, who was raised on high declares, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. Now remember, this is a psalm, right? This is a song. So some of you guys are already frustrated. What is he doing? Just lay it out, David. It's a song. This is, see, that's why you and I need to understand songs better, guys. Poetry. Put on your poetry hat here. So the God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men righteously, who rules in the fear of God, is as the light of the morning when the sun rises, a, a morning without clouds, when the ton, tender grass springs out of the earth through sunshine after rain. David goes on, Truly is not my house so with God, for he has made an everlasting covenant with me, ordered in all things and secured for all my salvation and all my desire. Will he not indeed make it grow? And the answer to that is yes. But the worthless, the word means wicked, but the worthless, every one of them will be thrust away like thorns because they cannot be taken in hand. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they will be completely burned with fire in their place. So we want to pull out of these verses, out of this song, some things that David understood as he looks on his life and he looks on Israel and he sees how God has worked in these 40-some years of his rule. What are some things that David understood? Now, this stuff is not, as we pull it apart, this is not profound stuff, okay? You're not going to be walking out here going, wow, Harold is just so intellectual and he's so able to pull these things out. They're really basic things, but they're things that may be hard for us to put into practice. The first thing that David understood is this, that God chose David. So you telling you, it's not real profound, pretty basic. God chose David. David. David says, I am the son of Jesse. Jesse. Man, to be the son of Jesse. Isn't that awesome? Who's Jesse? <laughs> I mean, sorry, right? You don't know who Jesse is. Jesse isn't some big name guy in Israel. He wasn't some prominent family necessarily in Israel. He wasn't a king in Israel. He was just Jesse. Just a guy who had a bunch of sons, worked hard, you know, did his bit and all that. But it wasn't like David came from some prominent family. It wasn't like David came from some military family or some kingly line. It wasn't like David, you know, when he was going through high school, he had his little yearbook and it says most likely to be a successful king and, you know, military general. I mean, it's this guy is just the son of Jesse. Samuel, the prophet, was told by God, go to Jesse's home, and I'm going to tell you which of these guys is going to be the king of Israel. So Samuel, he goes over to Jesse's house. He says, you know, one of your sons is going to be the king. <laughs> oh, wow. So the first son walks in, and, you know, he's the oldest. He's got a lot of attitude, and, you know, as, as the oldest will. <laughs> I'm the youngest of five boys. Anyways, um, my brother, if he listens to this, he's going to be calling me. Anyways, but he walks in, and Samuel's like, hey, this guy's pretty good, right? And God's like, nope, not, not the guy. Second son walks in. You know, he's the peacemaker, right? The second child is always the peacemaker. He walks in. Certainly, this guy, 
God's like, nope, third son, fourth son, fifth son, sixth son, seventh son. And God's like, nope, 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 nope. So Samuel's like, well, Jesse, do you, do you got anybody else? And Jesse's like, one, two, three, four, five. <laughs> oh, yeah, I got David. Well, where's he? He's out in the field, you know, tending some sheep. I mean, can you imagine how David must, must have felt? You know, talk about being called last to be on the kickoff team, you know, the kickball team, you know. Okay, we'll take David, you know. <laughs> so David's dad doesn't even remember him. I mean, this is not a good, am I right? This is not, the only time I was remembered in my house is when my brothers fought. They ran off. My mom came in the living room and spanked me. I didn't do anything. Well, that's something you were going to do, she'd say. Oh, okay, thanks. Kind of feel a little bit like David, I guess. Yeah, David wasn't anything special in that sense. But he knew that God chose him to rule a kingdom. Here's the deal. It doesn't matter what David's abilities were. It didn't matter whether he was from a great family or, or not so great family or uh, what he was able to do or not do. He ended up doing some cool things, but it was because God was doing it. What really matters in all this for David was, was what God could do through him. It wasn't about what David could do for God. It's never about that. It's always about what is God going to be able to do through us. Do we have the humility, which David had, do we have the ability to say, okay, God, I'm going to do it your way? And David had that. It's about what God can do through us. It takes humility. It takes understanding that it's God who's the one who's in charge. See, it's not about the background. It's not about the natural abilities. What David understood was, as he's telling us, as he's looking back on his life, what he understood was that he needed to obey God. He needed to do it God's way. And so he tells us about that. He says that God told him that the one who rules righteously and in the fear of God. Well, the, the word rule there means to, to manage, to take care of, to make decisions for, to set the environment for. It's political in his situation. It's uh, militarily in his situation, but it's also spiritual in his situation. They had priests back then, and they had their religion thing going. But David was the ultimate example. He's the one who set the environment. He's the one who kind of led the way and was the example for everybody else. This is what a godly man should do. Again, he didn't do it perfectly, right? I mean, anybody who knows the story of David knows he didn't do it perfectly. But he ultimately obeyed. He repented when he needed to repent. He got back on track when he needed to get back on track. And he did life God's way. He did things righteously. And again, this is a word the Bible uses all the time. And sometimes maybe we don't think about it anymore because we've heard about it for so much. But righteously just means doing it right, doing it God's way. That in spite of what anybody says or what everybody thinks, including ourselves, no, I'm going to do it God's way. And so David knew that. And for the most part in his life, he did it God's way. And when he screwed up, he repented and got things back on track. He, he did it out of fear of God. And People have asked me a lot of times, especially those who have come to Christ and they read this in the Bible, we're supposed to you know, be afraid of God. 
as Christians, we don't want to be afraid of him in the sense of having his judgment. Christ took his judgment for us. But we do have to have this reverential respect, this awe of who God is, this, this awesome, um, omnipotent, meaning all-powerful, infinitely powerful, infinitely loving, merciful, just God. We realize we're going to answer to him. David realized that when he died, he wasn't going to answer to anybody else in his life but God. And men, same for us. When we stand before God one of these days, we're not answering for our wives, we're not answering for our kids, we're not answering for our grandkids, we're answering for us and what God called us to do, whether we did it or not. And so David obeyed God, and it was in his obedience that God was able to bring this peace, this unity, this sense of calm in Israel. And that's what he's expressing um, in verse 4. It has this idea, again, it's a psalm, it's a song, it's, it's not how I would write it, but it's, it's, it says, it's a new day in Israel. It's kind of what Paul or Paul, uh, David is, is writing. It's a new day when, when David took the throne and as he lived life God's way, brought a new day to Israel. It's a day of growth and of peace and, and of health, in a sense, as a, as a nation. It talks about after the reign. If you want to look at it, Saul's reign, when King Saul was over Israel, he did life his way. He ran the kingdom the way he thought he should do. He started out good, but then he ended poorly. And it really weakened Israel. It caused Israel to be sickly. It caused Israel's enemies to be strong. And so when David showed up, and when David decided to do life God's way, it was God who brought the peace. It was God who brought health. And David recognizes this, starting in verse 6. He says that God established an everlasting covenant with me. What's he talking about there? We talked about this last week. God said to David, you, you do this my way. I want to let you know that I'm going to set up this eternal kingdom for you. There's going to be someone of your line, a descendant of yours, who's going to sit on your throne forever. What he's talking about there, ultimately, there's a lot of information in between, but ultimately what he's talking about is when we get to heaven, the new heavens and a new earth, Jesus Christ, the King, is going to be reigning, and we're going to be with him, serving him, worshiping him. He, he goes on to say, God's responsible for my security. He's, he's uh, responsible for my salvation. He's the one who gets me out of jams. He's the one who has secured this. This is going to happen God is at work. He even says that God gave him victory over his enemies. This is what he's talking about there with the worthless ones. Worthless meaning wicked. David, there are going to be people in David's life who are worthless. In other words, who are wicked. They're worthless in the sense that they're not going to help him accomplish what God wants him to accomplish in the nation. And so in that sense, they're wicked. And David had those people in his life. They were, some of them were Jewish, and some of them were from the nations around him. He had his enemies. And he says, those, those worthless ones, those wicked ones, you're not going to be able to mess with them. Your hands are going to be you know, stuck like with thorns. They're thorny people. And the only way to get rid of those is by, by taking a pitchfork, you know, the, the iron 
and the, the shaft of a spear, a pitchfork, and tossing them, tossing them into fire. And that's really cool the way the author of 2 Samuel goes on and he shares with us some of the mighty men of, of David's life. It's, this is his, the top 37 guys. This is his SEAL team. These are his personal bodyguards. These are the guys he hung with, who traveled with him, who were the ones he trusted the most. And it's interesting because it talks about how they, with the iron and spear, the shaft of a spear, took care of Israel's thorns, Israel's enemies. So I just thought it might be kind of fun to walk through these. Again, we're not going to read the verses. You can do that when you get home. I'll let you try to figure out the names um, when you get home. But he talks about this first guy, uh, Josheb, which again, his name is really long. If you've got your Bible open, you'll see it's like you know, half the page long. And, and, but he's really kind of known as the sharp spear. I mean, this guy, he was the point of the spear. This is when they put out there right in the front, right? He single-handedly killed 800 men. I like to mess with that guy. You know, walk down a dark alley, and this guy shows up with a spear. You know, 800 he killed. Eleazar, he single-handedly defeated Philistines when Israel retreated. There's, there's something about Israel's army that makes me a little nervous. They, they keep on retreating. They keep on taking off and leaving a guy standing there with just his spear or just his sword or, in one guy's case, a club. That's what my hands are, little clubs. Shema single-handedly defended a barley field when Israel retreated. So Philistine, they wanted to go in there and they wanted to take that food. And he's like, oh, no, no, you're not going to take our food. You're not, this is God's land. And so he stays there single-handedly defending that thing, keeping the Philistines from getting it. Then he talks about three unnamed men. Evidently, people back then knew who he was talking about. We don't know who they were today. But they risked their lives to get David a drink of water from Bethlehem. So he, David's from Bethlehem, uh, but at this time, the Philistines had occupied Bethlehem. Evidently, Bethlehem had some awesome water. Uh, so it'd be kind of like me sitting down, hanging out with some of, my, some of our buddies here at the church and on a Thursday night, and I'm like, man, what I wouldn't give for a Giannato's pizza. Oh, oh, I'd love to have one of those. And three guys leave without me knowing, jump in their car, they take off through a snowstorm, and lake effect snow, and, and rush hour traffic in Chicago to get me some Giordano's pizza. Nobody's left yet. What's going on? <laughs> that was a hint. Anyways, Giordano's pizza, man. It's Chicago-style stuffed pizza. Actually, I don't need you to do that because Kim makes it, and it's awesome. But anyways, so these guys, David's sitting in there all kind of hanging out. They're resting uh, from running around. You know, Saul was chasing him at this time. And so then he says, man, what I wouldn't give for some water from Bethlehem. And three guys take off, bust through the lines of the Philistines, get over to the well, scurry up some water, run it back. I'm not sure how they didn't spill it, but they ran back and they hand him the water. Man, you talk about courageous. You talk about gutsy move. Talk about some guys who really loved David and cared about David and were committed to his leadership. Man. And if you read the story, he pours it out <laughs> as an offering to God. He says, I can't. I can't have my men doing this. I get that you guys love me, but this is going to be an offering to God, thanking God for how awesome you guys are. And, uh, you know, again, if you guys bring me to Giordano's pizza, I'm going to eat it. But I, God doesn't like pizza. 
Then there's Abishai. Abishai. He killed 300 enemies with his spear. And in Benaiah, he killed two princes of Moab, so some big-name guys in Moab. Which, remember, Moab, Ruth, was a Moabite. Kind of interesting. A lion and a spear-wielding Egyptian with only a club. Actually, if you read the story, what he did was he, um, he dropped his club, he grabbed the guy's spear, turned around, and whoop, ran him through. I mean, these guys, you talk about, you know, tossing some thorns. These guys stood in there by themselves. When everybody else retreated, they were going to do it for God and for David. And if you read through those verses, it says several times that God gave them the victory. It was God who gave them the victory. How could they stand in there? They could only stand there because God was the one giving them the victory. So how does this impact us today? What truth do we pull as men? What truths do we pull out of this for us from his Psalms and, or Psalm and from his, his men? It's not that we go out and spear people. All right, we got that? Everyone understand that, right? I don't want to see some people show up next week with their spears. Who are we going for, Harold? Who's a thorn in your flesh? Well, kill them. No, we're not doing that. Just want to make sure. But again, back in, in verse 5, David tells us about this covenant. We talked about it a little bit ago. So God gave um, David the responsibility to manage his kingdom. That was David's portion, that time frame that David had on this earth was to manage God's kingdom. And so David, not perfectly, but worked hard and did what was necessary to do it righteously and to do it because he feared God. And so he managed that and he served God. Well, we today have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. If you're a, a Christian man here this morning, you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. And and so there is this kingdom that we live under. Right now, it's a spiritual kingdom that we have in our hearts because of our faith in Christ. And eventually, it's going to be ultimately this kingdom in heaven. But for now, we live in it in a different kingdom, if you want to put it this way, under another control. But he's calling us to serve our king, to serve Jesus Christ. And so for us as, as godly men, how do we do that? What do we learn from David? Well, the first thing is this. God has chosen you and me, men, to rule, to manage, to take care of the part of his kingdom that he's given us. Because here's the deal. Everything we have, if we're married, okay, our wives, if we have kids, our children, we also have a responsibility for us who have grandkids and great-grandkids, uh, our jobs, our friends, our church family. We have a responsibility, our, our possessions. Everything we have is God's. The Bible tells us that. Everything we have is God's. He's just giving it to us to manage for him. And as, as Christians, we should be managing it for his purposes, for, for his reasons, to show him honor, to fulfill his plans. And so like David made his decisions in order to set the example for everybody else as to what that looks like, we do the same thing in our lives, in our families. So we are to, to rule. We are to manage. 
we're to make decisions, we're to handle our wives, our kids, our grandkids, great-grandkids, possession, whatever it is, we, we handle it the way God wants us to. How does he want us to rule? Not by stomping on people, not by knocking people down verbally, verbally or physically, not by standing over them. And Sadly, I've known some guys who have done that to their wives and to their kids, literally standing over them, yelling at them. It's not that at all. That's not what godly leadership is. It's setting the environment in the home so that the spiritual life of your wife and kids and grandkids and friends and family and church family, that you're setting this environment so that people can grow, so that there's going to be peace, so there's going to be health, there's going to be a new day in your family maybe is a way to put it. And so we do it righteously, God's way. We do it... um, out of fear of God, a respect, a reverential respect for this incredible, awesome, powerful God who chose to die for us, to secure our, a relationship with Him and a future with Him, and we wouldn't have to go to hell, we get to go to heaven, and He's here with us, helping us today to do life God's way. He, he never dealt with us as a dictator. He's always dealt with us out of love, Firm, for those of us who are Christians, when we get off track, he gets us back on track one way or another. But it's done out of love. It's done out of care. And we as Christian men, that's what we need to do. God has chosen you and me to manage what he's given us and to do so righteously and in a a way that um, honors him and shows him respect. So guys... Wherever you're at, whatever the struggle is, and we can't be blaming our wives, can't be blaming our kids. They'll answer to God for what God wants them to be doing. But we can't sit there and blame everybody else or or use them as excuses. We need to man up and do what God's called us to do. Secondly, God will bring the victory through us. God will work. We got to trust him in that. We got we to know he's going to take care of us. And here's the deal it's God who brings a victory. It doesn't matter what our past was, it doesn't matter um, you know, how educated we think we are, it doesn't matter how experienced we are, it doesn't matter if our families were good or our families were bad. It, our past doesn't matter. What matters is how we're going to go forward. What are we going to do from this point on? It doesn't matter what Saturday looked like. It doesn't even matter what Sunday before church looked like. What matters is what's Sunday afternoon going to look like? How are you moving forward? Some guys, well, I don't know know how to do it. Man up and learn? You know, again, I want to be respectful, but... Maybe it's time that we just manned up and, and we learned what the Bible says about what it means to be a godly husband or what it means to be a, a, a godly father or grandfather or great-grandfather or friend or someone who attends a church. I mean, that's what we get together for. David had his guys, right? Well, we got, a, got the guys here at church. We got a lot of guys with a lot of wisdom, wisdom from how they did life right and how they did life wrong. 
get together with the guys here at church. We do it on Thursday nights. We're, we're starting these micro groups. We've got these adult groups. Just get together. You don't even have to have this official get together. Just grab some coffee together. Talk about life together. Help each other out. We're going to have enemies. David had enemies. One of the enemies that we have is ourself. Our pride, our arrogance. Us telling ourselves, well, I know what God's word says about that, but yeah, but I'm not sure if that's really, I can, can I trust what God, you know, our first and foremost enemy is ourself. And we got to take the, the sword of the Lord and stick that and put that to death. We're going to have other people that are going to tell us we shouldn't be doing it. We, we can't do it and you shouldn't be doing it that way. And that's not how we did it. And I remember, you know, you could do all that. That gives us a third point. We got to stop moping around, guys. Got to stop making excuses. And we need to pick up the sword. Like I said, we're not going to go, you know, we have a family member or a friend who says, you shouldn't be doing life that way. We're not going to go get a sword and, you know, stab them. All right. Again, I don't just want to make sure everybody understands I'm not talking about actually physically killing somebody. All right. Had somebody tell me a little story afterwards. I was thinking, yikes. Don't go kill anybody. The New Testament calls the Bible the sword, the sword of the Lord. It's a two-edged sword. It cuts to the quick. It cuts to the heart of things. So what do we do? We, we stop moping. We get up. If you read about those guys, uh, David's military guys, they, were, they got up. One guy, it says it. he got up and he went to town. He just took care of the Philistines. Well, we need to get up, we need to take our sword, we need to use the sword, God's word, how God says to do life, and we need to impale the sin that's in our lives, or the, and again, gotta be careful in this day and age, in response to people who are saying, no, you need to do it another way, we say, no, this is what God's word says. I want to do life God's way. And again, we already know what our lives look like when we do it our way, right? We already have an example of that. So we want to do it God's way. So you're struggling with your wife. The relationship issues with your wife. The Bible's got something to say about that. Are you struggling with maybe your children or with your grandchildren or your great-grandchildren? The Bible has something to say about that. Are you struggling with your work situation, your finances? Are you struggling with some sort of maybe just your own personal sin issue? The Bible has something to say about all of that. So we need to get into God's Word and to know it. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I'm here to, to help you with that. That's why we have the other guys in our church to help you with that. We need to come around each other and help each other, challenge each other, encourage each other, walk through stuff together. So what are the takeaways? Yes, there are still some takeaways. Some of you are like, whoa, that was not a takeaway. Quickly, as the band comes up, close us out. So some takeaways for men. And by the way, women, uh, we're going to ask something of you too, or something you should consider. Because um, after all, we did this when we talked about Ruth, we were talking about men as well. So first of all, men, your takeaway from this, what I would challenge you and what God is challenging us, is that we need to humbly seek out God's way of doing things. We need to realize that we are not the king of our life. 
Saul messed Israel up because he thought he was the king of Israel. We are not the kings of our life. Christ is the king of our lives. Christ is the king of the little part of his kingdom that he's asked us to manage. And so we need to humble ourselves. And we need to say, you know what? I don't have all the answers. I don't know how to do this or how to do that. I am not doing life God's way. I need to correct how I'm doing life. And, and for women, and really this is for wives or those who are going to become wives maybe down the road, let me just challenge you with something. And you can go to 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, Ephesians chapter 5, if you want to you know, check me on this. You need to be praying for and encouraging your husband. First Peter says that, that in your response to your husband, if your husband is not doing life God's way, or you think he's not doing it God's way, whatever the case, that, that you are to respond to him in a way he understands, with action. Respond with serving. And that says that, that he might be one without a word by the word. And what he's saying there is, what God's telling us is that you're never going to nag your husband to become somebody that you want him to become. That's what it is. If I could just put it in our vernacular today. Don't nag your husband. Pray for him. Encourage him. Serve him. Help him. Know what makes him tick. Know what, know what motivates him. And then do those things that motivate him, that help him, that encourage him. Don't nag him. Don't tear him down in front of people, in front of your kids, in front of other people. You, if you start tearing your husband down in front of me, I'm going to have a conversation with you. If you do it in front of my wife, she's really going to have a conversation with you. It's one of our hot buttons for us. Man, you can't do that. We need to do life God's way. And when we do life God's way, men, he's the one who's going to bring health into our relationships. He's going to bring peace into our relationships into our home. He's going to be able to use us to bring that into other people's lives as well. Dave?